This episode of The Dig, like every episode of The Dig, is produced in partnership with Jacobin Magazine. Jacobin is an incredible publication, and you've probably seen a lot of what they've published online. But they also have a really beautiful print magazine. It comes out quarterly and has well over 100 pages packed with illustrations, infographics, and some of the best graphic design in the country. Dig listeners can join 50,000 Jacobin subscribers developing socialist political thought and debate for just $15 a year. $15 gets you an entire year of Jacobin in print and access to the magazine's entire back catalog. If you've never subscribed to Jacobin before, you can access this deal by going to bit.ly slash digjacobin all lowercase. That's bit.ly slash digjacobin, B-I-T dot L-Y, digjacobin, all lowercase. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. It is no simple task for a poor country to escape its place in the world system. Global South countries like Ecuador, once known as third world countries, have been consigned since colonial times to exporting primary commodities from sugar and silver and bananas to oil and copper and low-wage manufactured goods, while capitalists in wealthy countries like the U.S. control the most profitable top of the value chain. Not that first-world capitalists share their spoils with first-world workers, at least not since the neoliberal turn. Just as the capitalist system relies on a domestic order of class domination within which capitalists exploit workers, it also fixes different countries in particular places in the global economic order. Ecuador, exporting goods like bananas and oil, is near the bottom. Those unequal domestic class and also racial orders are fundamentally linked to the unequal world system. Keeping that order in place is one reason that capitalism and imperialism go hand in hand. As I recently discussed with Toby Chow and Jake Warner, it's why the U.S. is so furious about China breaking the so-called rules of the global economy. Latin America's last era of left governments— The so-called pink tide that began with Hugo Chavez's 1998 election in Venezuela accomplished major achievements in dramatically reducing poverty and including the excluded at the heart of revitalized democratic societies. But they were unable to escape their place in the world system and also to a degree that might be surprising given all the scaremongering over creeping communism, they were constrained in their ability to remake domestic class orders. The case of Ecuador is a case in point. Rafael Correa, who took office in 2007, joined fellow Pink Tide presidents in taking advantage of soaring prices for commodities like oil, driven by China's breakneck industrialization to ramp up social spending. When that commodity boom went bust in 2014, the fiscal basis for left governments across Latin America evaporated. But in Ecuador, conflict over the export-dependent model emerged earlier at the commodity boom's height. 
Korea's push to create a large-scale mining sector and to expand oil drilling prompted fierce resistance from Ecuadorian social movements led by the CONAI, the legendary National Indigenous Federation. That's what my guest today, Theo Riofrancos, discusses in her new book, Resource Radicals, From Petro-Nationalism to Post-Extractivism in Ecuador. The CONAI, at its height the most powerful social movement organization in the Americas, had led the resistance to neoliberalism that took off in the 1990s, laying the groundwork for Correa's election. At the height of the struggle against neoliberalism, CONAI and social movements embraced what Thea calls radical resource nationalism. The demand that the exploitation of natural resources and the benefits derived from them be controlled by the people through a democratic state. But soon after Correa took office, the anti-neoliberal alliance fractured. Correa saw large-scale mining for gold and copper as a way to generate resources to reduce poverty. Many indigenous people and small-scale farmers, campesinos, however, viewed mining as a threat to their land, water, and territory. It wasn't just that Correa had betrayed radical resource nationalism by continuing to allow foreign corporations to dominate mining and oil. Social movements attacked Correa's continuation of the very extractive model, demanding an Ecuador without large-scale mining and indeed without any extraction at all. But social movements like Conaí were unable to replicate the size and scope of their past mobilizations against neoliberalism. Many who might have joined the CONAI in the past welcomed Correa's redirection of commodity boom spending to the poor majority. And so what happened was the rights of indigenous community and nature came into conflict with economic uplift for the majority. An impossible situation for a left that is charged with securing economic justice for people and also a habitable planet upon which people can live. This intra-left fight became an incredibly bitter and polarized one, and it raised key dilemmas for left social movements and left governments. Problems that are all the more obvious with climate change wreaking its most lethal and disruptive havoc on the world's poor, painfully demonstrating that there can be no economic justice without ecological balance. Briefly, Please support this podcast at patreon.com slash the dig. If you contribute at least $10 a month, we will send you a free left-wing book or books as a thank you in the mail. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash the dig. Also, join a dig book club and meet the authors of the books you hear discussed on the dig by visiting thedigradio.com slash dig hyphen book hyphen club. Next up is Sarah Jaffe's Work Won't Love You Back, How Devotion to Our Jobs Keeps Us Exploited, Exhausted, and Alone. Visit thedigradio.com slash dig hyphen book hyphen club. Okay, here is Theo Riofrancos, a professor of political science at Providence College and a Radcliffe Institute fellow. She serves on DSA's Green New Deal Campaign Committee and is a co-author of A Planet to Win, why We Need a Green New Deal, and the author of Resource Radicals, From Petro-Nationalism to Post-Extractivism in Ecuador. Thea is the DIG's senior advisor, and also, full disclosure for those of you who haven't heard such disclosures in past interviews, she has been my partner since 2004. 
We were both deeply involved in Latin America solidarity organizing in the early years of our relationship, and we moved to Ecuador in 2008, eager to learn about one pink tide government and the social movements that brought it to power. Thea Rio Francos, welcome back to The Dig. It's great to be here. Thanks. This is a rather unorthodox way to begin an interview, but why in your mid-20s in 2007 did you and I decide to move to Ecuador and how did what we observed there help shape this book that you've written? So in um, 2007, as you said, we decided to move to South America, and our choice of Ecuador was a bit arbitrary. We sort of eliminated countries that we had already spent a lot of time in, um, and we had a list of a few, and among them we chose Ecuador because it was a place where a left-wing government had just come to power in this broader moment of um, that scholars call the pink tide, which was kind of sweep of left-wing governments uh, across the continent. And for years prior, both of us had been involved in what's called Latin America solidarity politics, involved in visiting Latin America and coming into direct contact with social movements and also receiving delegations from social movements and labor unions in Latin America. And this solidarity uh, politics comes out of the the late 1970s and 1980s during Reagan's Dirty Wars, um, where there was the emergence of the solidarity movement in the U.S. But it had had shifted and changed, um, especially with the arrival of left-wing governments to power, starting with Hugo Chavez in 19 And as solidarity activists, we found ourselves in an interesting position of being in solidarity both with with movements, with popular movements, workers' movements, indigenous movements, women's movements, but also with uh, nascent left-wing governments um, who found themselves very much under the the watch of of empire, right, and and, and were concerned about how uh, imperial powers might respond to them. So we were kind of in that interesting um, mix of solidarity politics when we decided to move to Ecuador. And arriving in Ecuador, I think what we both learned right away, we we, we knew already that the arrival to the power, uh, the arrival to power of the left would be complicated for the reasons I just said, right? So they're arriving to power in a in a context of 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 imperialism and and know that they're under threat both from the domestic ruling class um, and and also from foreign powers. But it was complex in an additional way, which kind of goes back to what I was just saying about movements and governments, which is how would popular movements interact with the governments that they had helped bring to power, right? When left governments come to power anywhere in the world, social movements and labor unions face this question, like, are we in uh, strict alliance with the government? Um, Are we defending the government against its enemies and our enemies? Are we holding the government accountable uh, to its promises? Are we pushing the government to radicalize, right? And I would say all of those options were explored and enacted in different ways, in different contexts of left-wing rule in Latin America at that moment. But Ecuador was unique in a way, because right from the beginning, 
conflict emerged between movements that had critically supported, um, and I mean critical in both senses of the term, right? They were critical in that they were crucial to the rise of Rafael Correa, the president of, of Ecuador that had just been recently elected when we arrived. Um, but they were also critical in the other sense of the word, which is that they did not lose their critical faculties once he came to power. So, you know, we have this this emergent, this uh, rise of the left to power after a long period of, of movement mobilization, which we'll talk about a lot in this in this interview. And when you and I arrived to Ecuador, those movements were already in a process of critiquing and then shortly thereafter coming into actual opposition with the government. And as solidarity activists, and then later on myself as a scholar, that is exactly what was interesting, but also fraught. How do I analyze intra-left conflict in a way that is objective, but also generous and sort of true to those principles of solidarity and internationalism that brought us to Ecuador in the first place? Um, And I'll just say briefly for now, because we'll get into this much more throughout the interview, that the other thing that was quite interesting about Ecuador, in addition to the fact that conflict between movements and, and, and a left government started sort of quite quickly after the left assumed power, is what the conflict was about. The conflict really hinged on the issues of resource extraction, socio-environmental conflict around extraction, and indigenous territory sovereignty and self-determination. Those were the main points of conflict, not only between the state and movements, but also even within different factions of the state itself. And in terms of movements, Ecuador is and was home to the indigenous federation, the Konai, the most powerful indigenous movement in the Americas at, at, at certain moments and perhaps the most powerful social movement in Latin America at certain moments. Yeah, absolutely. Scholars have referred to the Konai at its moment of sort of supreme strength in in the 1990s, especially as the most powerful movement in its mobilizing capacity and its ability to topple multiple governments in Ecuador as the most powerful movement in the hemisphere. Um, And so it was a force to be contended with. By the time that Correa came to power, the movement had to some extent weakened, but was still an extremely important force and, and sort of reemerged as an important articulator of, of popular, um, a popular protest under the Correa administration. You, you write that about this debate under Correa, who was president from 2007 through 2017, that it, quote, emerged in a regional context characterized by two processes, the electoral, suce- the electoral success of leftist governments and a sustained commodity boom. Let's start with the context of the rise of left governments in the pink tide in Latin America. Ecuador then and now is, I think, one of the pink tide countries that has received the least attention in the U.S. What did pink tide leaders mean by what they called socialism for the 21st century? And where did Correa's government fit into this broader set of leaders and governments that included Lula in Brazil, Chavez in Venezuela, Morales in Bolivia, Kirchner in Argentina, Vasquez in Uruguay. And because at the time, at least, there was this conventional dichotomy drawn between good and bad, radical and moderate leftist governments in Latin America. But you argue that such categories don't really hold up upon closer inspection. 
So I think to answer this question, I want to set the context a little bit more um, and pick up with some of the things that I was saying in, uh, previously, um, which is just to emphasize uh, to listeners less familiar with Latin American politics, how world historic, and I really mean world world historic, important for like the entire planetary conjuncture, the coming to power of so many left-wing governments at once was. It's it's really quite historically unusual. I, I think that the only kind of parallel to make is, you know, the the rise of the simultaneous rise of many social democratic governments in Europe. But I think that the rise of so many left governments in the global south in that context of empire, like makes it, you know, even even, you know, additionally unique. And just to, to put it in perspective, in I think 2009 or 2010, what is like the height of the pink tide, two thirds of Latin Americans, two thirds of Latin Americans lived under left of center or more radically left wing governments, right? So it's, it's like a very widespread phenomenon of the left coming to power. And not only is it in terms of numbers or the number of countries or governments, as you listed, but it's also important in, in terms of the rupture that it marked, right? So prior to the pink tide, you had decades of, of neoliberal governments that, that had various, you know, shades of ideology, but all of them were committed to a neoliberal program. That that neoliberal program is precisely what left-wing governments came to power to, in their own words, contest and dismantle very much in response to, again, decades of, of social mobilization. And prior to the neoliberal, democratically elected neoliberal governments, you had dictatorships, right? So one of the fascinating things about Latin America is just this pendulum kind of swing uh, between different political paradigms and also regime types in, in short periods of time, um, really dramatic shifts. Um, so you have a bunch of left-wing governments coming to power, and you, you mentioned several of them. And Oftentimes, the way that scholars, especially in the moment, but but these categories are still with us, unfortunately, and kind of analyze these governments is good versus bad left. And this is in academic journals and in the pages of the New York Times. You know, it's it's a common way to describe them. And you know, generally, bad left was the more radical left. That was that was at least how this, the, the the scholars defined it. And the good left was supposedly the more pragmatic left. But these categories are, I think, extremely unhelpful. I mean, first and foremost, they're not analytic categories. They're normative categories, right? And they're normative categories from a certain liberal perspective, kind of gazing on the global South and saying, you know, what is the right and wrong path for governments um, in the global South to take? So they, you know, kind of immediately betray their their normative position. So I think they're kind of suspect for for that reason. You know, and let's go to the figure of Korea um, in, in particular. Korea is classified as the bad left, um, along with generally Morales and Chavez. Some of that is based on, on his rhetoric, which really reproduces the tropes of, of Latin American leftism. It's anti-imperialist. It's about the state reasserting its power. It's about meeting social needs, right? And so on that... And anti-imperialist and being anti-U.S. imperialism in particular. Exactly. Exactly. And so that that is why scholars have classified him as, quote-unquote, radical. But, you know, on the other hand, Korea unlike Morales, and actually unlike Lula, who's characterized as a good left, 
doesn't come from a social movement or labor background. He is a technocrat. He is an economist. He had previously served uh, as a finance minister under, under another government. He is left wing. I'm not like doubting his left credentials, though a lot of what my book is about is conflicts over how we define the left, right? But I, I think I would, you know, I would place him firmly in the left. But he is a technocratic leftist with no history of social movement activity and in no way is like an organic intellectual and leader like Morales was automatically these categories break down because it would actually be more useful, as I think better scholars have done, to analyze how these leaders came to power, what their trajectories were autobiographically, to analyze the trajectories of the political parties that they led. Were these parties grounded and rooted in social movements? Were these parties kind of created as electoral vehicles in order to bring a particular leader to, to, to the ballot box? You know, and to sort of get more granular. And the last thing I'll say, you know, on this sort of granular point, and, and the other big reason that I really dislike these sort of broad generic labels to label entire countries as good or bad left, is that what I discovered in, in Ecuador, but what I think you discover researching any of these cases in depth, is that there was a tremendous amount of contention, conflict, also at times collaboration between movement and state actors, right? So to sort of label the entire country under one moniker really kind of effaces the fact that what the left's project was, was up for debate. How to implement leftism in the context of the global South under the thumb of empire was under debate. What tactics to use vis-a-vis -vis a domestic ruling class that so recently had been politically hegemonic in the neoliberal period was up for question, right? And so these labels just don't do justice to the more interesting thing, which is the internal tensions and dilemmas and trade-offs that marked the period of left rule. Your book is about this intra-left conflict over mining that was really a central political conflict throughout Correa's time in office. To, to what extent did these sorts of conflicts over resource extraction emerge in other pink tide countries? And to the extent that they did not, why not? You could, there are all these different factors at play. Ecuador had a powerful indigenous movement in contrast to, say, Venezuela. But Bolivia also had a massive indigenous movement. And environmental conflict was was a feature, but I don't think a defining theme of Morales' conflict with his base. Was Ecuador's experience exemplary or unique, or was it more of an omen foreshadowing the sort of problems that any left government effort to deal with ecological crisis will face? I think it's both exemplary and unique. But let me zoom out a bit and talk about the commodity boom for a moment, because that was that other big process that you mentioned in your prior question. So two processes mark the political economic conjuncture that I'm looking at in my book. On the one hand is the rise of the left to power and all of the interesting questions and dilemmas that that posed, as I just discussed. And on the other hand, that was a regional phenomenon, right? The other context is a global context. So we can see that, you know, countries are in, are nested in sort of different political economic scales. And the global context economically was marked by the commodity boom. And that is a economic kind of period, a, an economic cycle, we can call it, that 
starts in roughly 2000 and ends in roughly 2014. And it was driven primarily by China's rapid industrialization, uh, but also by the industrialization of other so-called emerging economies, uh, Brazil, Russia, India. And um, so you have this sudden increase in demand for raw materials. Why? Because in order to industrialize, in order to manufacture goods, goods are made from, you know, raw materials that come from the earth. So all of the the prices for those raw materials skyrocketed because there was so much demand for them on the global market. And what's interesting about Latin America is that it is, as we'll again discuss throughout this interview, a commodity and export dependent region economically. So many of those goods are extracted or harvested in Latin America. And so at the same time that the left came to power, there was a tremendous flow of uh, economic resources into state coffers because all of these governments ruled over national economies that exported these resources. And in Ecuador, particularly, the effects of the commodity boom were felt through a dramatic increase in oil prices and also a dramatic increase in mineral prices, which is part of what incentivized the Korea government to kind of finally exploit these mineral reserves that had been really untapped in Ecuador for for its history. Um, So why then, in this context of the left in power and the commodity boom, do we get such intense conflict over extraction? And in in fact, the emergence of militant anti-extractive movements, primarily based in the indigenous movement and in allied radical um, environmental groups? Why in Ecuador? And you nicely lay out that there could be different causes for this. And one of those causes you, you mentioned, which is a long history of indigenous mobilization in Ecuador that I've already said that the CONAI, the National Indigenous Federation, was one of the most powerful social movements in the continent. And and it's a lot of what it had um, mobilized around for a long time at this point were the issues of land, of territory, and also the threats, um, especially in the Amazon, of of resource extraction to indigenous um, territorial rights. So you have that trajectory. But I think what what sets Ecuador apart from, let's say, Bolivia is is a couple of things. You have the addition of a completely new extractive sector in Ecuador. So I said that Ecuador had long been, you know, an oil producing state and oil was one of the commodities that, you know, saw its prices increase a lot. Ecuador had extracted and exported oil since the early 1970s. But Korea's gambit to diversify the portfolio of extractive sectors into large scale copper and gold mines mining was a real game changer. And scholars have noted um, o- across the world that when governments or, and corporations seek to exploit new extractive sectors that are, are new in the, in the national economic context, but also new in another sense, which is that they expose territories, ecosystems, and peoples not previously directly in, in, in touch with, with extractive sectors to the fate of extraction, which involves environmental pollution and contamination, dispossession, threats to pre-existing livelihoods. So introducing a new extractive sector really changes the politics of extraction. It makes extraction salient in a new way um, compared to more institutionalized extractive sectors. And the last thing that I'll say that sets Ecuador apart So, you know, we have a very strong indigenous movement with links to the environmentalist movement. We have a new extractive sector, which makes extraction more contentious um, oftentimes. And in addition, Ecuador, more than Bolivia, is really tied to the 
the boom and bust global cycle um, that of the commodity boom uh, and really tied to the Chinese economy. A lot of what Bolivia exports, primarily gas, is more regional in its economic ambit. And so China uh, sort of coming to a close with its rapid industrialization phase didn't as directly affect Bolivia's economic fortunes. And we can actually see that in the, that Bolivia uh, that Bolivia's gas exports were less tied to this global boom and bust cycle in the fact that Morales's ec- the, the economic fortunes of Morales's government were much better than than those of of Correa's or or um, or Chavez's. And although Morales entered into pretty major crisis and suffered a coup, Mas is now back in power as we speak. Absolutely, but but that was that was a delayed sort of response, right? I mean, we ultimately Bolivia does feel the effects of various global down economic downturns. Terms, right, but it wasn't as immediately affected by the sort of close of, of of China's rapid industrialization period as as Ecuador's was. This is a key paradox with the commodity boom. It operated within this pre-existing world system that marginalized countries like Ecuador. While at the same time, it created the fiscal basis for the pink tide's left rule. But then it ultimately helped send the pink tide into crisis. Was it the main cause? of the pink tides crisis and decline or or were there other factors at play there were other factors at play but i think that there's it's you can't just ignore the fact of of just timing right so i think across the region these various pink tide cover, governments starting in around 2014 really entered into serious political difficulties and there were different reasons and conjunctures in each case. There were different balances of class and political power. There were different relationships to social movements and, and questions over how democratic the relationship between the state and movements was, right? And so I don't want to, I don't want to simplify that too much, but I do want to say that the end of the commodity boom decisively in 2014 sets into motion a series of really perhaps insurmountable economic difficulties for these governments. And we have to understand that the political power and popularity of these governments was closely tied to their ability to spend massively on social services and public infrastructures, which helped lift up dramatically uh, people's life chances, developmental outcomes, employment possibilities, possibilities for forms of local economic development, right? So their ability to keep winning elections was was closely tied to the economic scene. And I think that, you know, the, the end of, of the period of the commodity boom was there weren't the fiscal resources in place in most cases, with Bolivia aside, like Bolivia, even like the World Bank, like lauded their macroeconomic management and their ability to smooth out some of those boom bust cycles um, with forms of state saving um, and and then and then subsequent investment, but in general their fates hinged on their ability to meet people's needs because they came into power responding to decades of social movements demanding that those needs be met and they promised upon coming to power that they would and they were reelected multiple times i mean it's amazing korea as you said 10 years in power how long these governments lasted in power given the difficulties of being a left-wing government in the global south but they they stayed in power because of their ability to deliver on promises and i think it can't be understated how much the commodity boom undermined that possibility now i just want to note 
to, to kind of give a little more context here that part of, of the reason that these government's economic fates were so tied to the global economic scene was because of the prior period of neoliberalism, right? So these governments didn't come to power, you know, out of nowhere, you know, or in a vacuum. They came to power, you know, in the thick of history. And the prior decades of history had been more and more concerted attempts by governing elites, by international financial institutions, and by corporations and the domestic ruling classes to deeply integrate Latin American economies into the global economy, to deregulate, to liberalize markets, to become more export-oriented, to lease and sell concessions for mining and oil and other attractive projects to foreign companies. And by the time the left came to power, Latin America had a different relationship to the global economy. It was rather seamlessly integrated into those global markets and deeply depended on them for its economic fate. Um, and so the pink tide couldn't have immediately undone that relationship between the regional and the national and, and the sort of global. But it also didn't really try to because the the very understandable incentive or temptation or whatever we want to call it to make good use immediately of all of these economic resources flowing into their state coffers because of how well their exports were doing on global markets was too great. They had an immediate fiscal a fiscal basis in order to uh, address the social needs of their populations. And they did renegotiate contracts with foreign firms. Um, sometimes this is kind of simplified and just called like resource nationalism in a simplistic way or nationalization. In many cases, they didn't nationalize extractive firms but or expropriate them. Not very often. I mean, they really didn't expropriate much, but they did forcefully and with a lot of a very strong political democratic mandate behind them, renegotiate contracts with oil companies, mining companies, soy companies, gas companies, and in order to increase the state's take, in order to increase the taxes and royalties that are paid to the state. And so they basically made the gamble of we're going to stay in the global economy. We're going to renegotiate contracts so the terms are better for the state and for the, the people. But we are not going to sort of uh, retreat from, from the global economy and isolate ourselves. But the commodity boom also allowed left governments to boost social spending without radically confronting their domestic class system, something often lost in the radical rhetoric of a Correa or a Chavez, which meant when the commodity boom went bust, the upper class was very much still there in a pretty powerful economic position ready for reaction. Absolutely. You know, the the other reason that that resource rents, as they're called technically, are kind of politically easy forms of, of financing social programs and public works is not just because, you know, as I said, the prices were high for the commodity. So a lot of money was coming in. So they were easy in that sense. But they also avoided the question of deeper forms of class conflict, because if you have, you know, oil or mining money or gas money coming in, you don't need to or you can defer, you can sort of punt into the future, the question of expropriating property um, of the wealthy or less dramatically, but but equally challenging in Latin America of just taxing the rich more. I mean, it's amazing. Latin America has just very low taxation rates. And that is because the ruling class, you know, from the, the period of independence has been really unwilling to support the, the broader masses through taxation. And so you these governments, for the most part, did not expropriate property, did not dramatically redistribute 
land. There were there were various attempts at land reform and some of them moderately successful, like in, in Bolivia, but there was not massive land redistribution. So land tenure remains deeply unequal. And though Korea did make the tax system more progressive and he should be lauded for that, some of his attempts to make it even more progressive, for example, with an inheritance tax, the right wing came out in the streets and he withdrew it. Right. And so it was politically easier um, to just were there those huge protests with everyone dressed in white when we exactly were there? <laughs> yeah elite protests are for anyone who hasn't witnessed them in Latin America are are very strange spectacles um, uh, but yeah they came out in force and he he withdrew it um, uh, he had implemented some other tax reform that was positive but he didn't he didn't implement all the tax reforms that he wanted to before we get into a lot more historical detail about Ecuador what are the standard ways that this resource dependency that we've been discussing in the context of the commodity boom. What are the standard ways that that's analyzed in social science? And how does this complex case of Ecuador's intra-left struggle over extraction, how does it prove it to be insufficient, if not just wrong? The standard way that scholars analyze resource extraction, the politics of the political economy, let's say a resource extraction, is through the lens of the resource curse and related concepts like the rentier state or the petro state. So the resource curse idea is that resources, resource dependency, so the, the fiscal economic dependency on, on the export of, of resources like oil or gas or mining results in two types of pathologies, one economic and the other political. So the economic pathology is that there tends to be underinvestment in more, quote unquote, productive sectors of the economy. All of the investment kind of flows to the resource sectors because they tend to, you know, always have a market, a global market for them, right? So why, you know, invest in, in more long term productive industrial or manufacturing um, kind of capital. So that's that's the economic problem. And that leaves governments vulnerable to those boom and bust cycles. Right. And then the political piece is that ostensibly states that depend on resource extraction and export are more likely to be authoritarian, either outright authoritarian, autocratic or just like lower quality democracies. And, you know, immediately there are lots of problems with this because there are lots of governments in the world um, that that have large resource sectors from Canada to Norway, right, that that don't seemingly fall prey to the resource curse. So immediately we are reminded that countries occupy different positions in the world system and that that really shapes uh, how the extraction and export of resources affects their domestic political economy, right? It's very different to be Norway than to be Ecuador. And, and those in turn relate to different internal trajectories of, of state building and class class relations and all sorts of things. So one problem is there are just too many exceptions to this rule for it to be a good guide to how resource politics will um, will play out. And, you know, one way that I like to think about this particular problem with it, the fact that it doesn't attend to the different positions of, of countries in, in the sort of global system is Timothy Mitchell's great line. And, and I know you, you interviewed him on the dig. Um, his great line that all states are oil states, because what the resource curse does is say the oil states are Saudi Arabia, Venezuela, Ecuador, you know, whatever so countries that that have large you know oil sectors and, and export them. But what Timothy Mitchell is saying is that the entire global economy runs on oil, hopefully not for much longer. And so to say that, like, just the countries that happen to have oil in their territory are the oil states is a real misunderstanding of the way that oil and capitalism relates to one another. It's like the phrase banana republic, which we've heard over the last few weeks, which somehow obscures which countries eating the bananas and which government uh, is backing the banana growers. 
<laughs> right. Exactly. Exactly. So that's that's one one issue is that, you know, it's methodologically nationalist, we might put it. It just takes countries as these like national containers and doesn't think about the relationships between them or their relationships to a, to a global order. A second problem, and now I'm going to get a little more into the case of Ecuador to get, you know, a little more um, texture of, of why these the, the resource curse is not a very useful way to think about what happened in Ecuador. So, as I said, the, re, the resource curse predicts that that countries that are dependent on these resources will become authoritarian. And that's for various reasons. One is that resources are resource rents are a great way to fund military and security apparatuses. Another is that this is kind of a strange argument, but but listeners will be familiar because of the sort of U.S. Um, or American revolution history of like no taxation without representation. So uh, the idea of the political resource curse that, that it leads to authoritarianism is that if you don't have to tax your citizens, they won't demand representation. So, so you know, this sort of very um, simplistic idea of what caused like the American Revolution is then generalized into this general rule of politics. So that, you know, you get an idea of how political science, normative political science functions. Um, but that's for another day. Um, but but so so there's this prediction will become more authoritarian. But that totally misdescribes what happened in Ecuador. I don't I'm not at all saying that Korea didn't attempt in various ways to concentrate power. Many leaders attempt to concentrate power. Right. We can only need to look at the, our own recent history, not just of Trump, but of Bush, Obama, Clinton, of, you know, the increasing executive authority in the U.S. Right. So that's not particularly tied to resources. That's something that actually happens often in, in presidentialist systems, particularly. But but more generally, Ecuador, what Ecuador saw amidst a commodity boom, amidst the circumstances that scholars would say most likely causes like the resource curse to be set in motion is a proliferation of conflict over democracy, of different ideas about democracy, of, you know, local directly affected communities and indigenous movements claiming forms of direct communitarian democracy and saying that they should have control over their territories and enacting new democratic practices in order to, to resist extraction. You have the state paying a lot of lip service and some real, you know, policy reality to creating new participatory institutions for citizens to interact with the state. You have a constitution that dramatically, a new constitution, which we'll talk about later, that dramatically expands collective rights. So the rights of that, that communities hold and that they can, uh, you know, petition for to, to, to the state. And so what you have is kind of an efflorescence, practices and subjectivities on the terrain of democracy and a fight over who is the demos and how do they enact their power. And it's, it's not at all uh, a situation in which somehow resource dependency uh, unilaterally determines the road, you know, going down the road to authoritarianism. Let's set some key historical context. Ecuador first became a petro state under a military government in 1972, and that government saw oil as key to the to developing the country. What sort of military government was Ecuador's, and how did it fit into the third world oil politics of that era? And how was it that the military government quote left an enduring ideological legacy of resource nationalism, which would later be reappropriated and radicalized by popular movements. That's normally not the legacy we think of Latin American military governments of having had. Yeah, it's interesting because uh, I mentioned, you know, my answer to one of the earlier questions, this period of dictatorship uh, that 
runs, you know, roughly from the 60s to the late 80s, early early 90s, sort of depending on, on, on the specific context. But it's a few decades of a lot of military governments across the region. And many of them are right wing. And many of them come into power specifically as a counter reaction to the growth of popular labor and popular movement power under prior uh, governments that were more left or progressive or, or sort of nationalist. And so they're, they're specifically coming into power as reactionary forces. But not all military governments were the same. And there were, at least in the cases I'm more familiar with, which are, are Bolivia and, and Ecuador, there were military governments that came to power that were progressive in a sense, or at least had a sort of nas- a national developmentalist kind of vision for the economy and saw themselves as not primarily about repression, not to downplay the repression that those governments meted out because they did, but more primarily about transitioning their countries up the ladder of economic development. And this was very much uh, characterized the Rodriguez Lara government in, in Ecuador that came to power in 1972 and was in power until 1976. There was another military government right after that, and then in 79 you have democratization. So the Rodriguez Lara government, and this will be familiar to folks that are aware of sort of the politics of oil in the 1970s, came to power, was sort of bookended by like these two major kind of oil booms, right? These booms in, in oil prices that have their own reason and trajectory that I won't get into right now. But the Ecuadorian government prior to, to Lara knew that there were oil reserves. They had recently sort of been discovered in the late 60s. And the military, the government comes to power with the explicit aim of creating a petro state in Ecuador, of of creating a state that could oversee, assert its authority over the oil sector and extract and export that oil with the specific goal of national development. And so that that was the ideology and the policy paradigm of the Lara government, they, the, the Rodriguez Lara government. They established a state-owned oil company, which still exists today. They asserted much more state control over the the territories where, where oil was found and how the state related to, to, to foreign corporations. They also instituted other some progressive, some maybe more hard to classify reforms. So in the progressive category, they instituted Ecuador's most major land reform, actually. Um, But they also instituted a policy called colonization, which was a policy to uh, incentivize people from the highlands of Ecuador to move into the Amazon to help, quote unquote, develop the Amazon. That sets off lots of conflicts with indigenous communities, which we'll get to later. But just to give you a sort of sense of of this government in power, they also, as you mentioned, took a really leading role in OPEC in the sort of early 1970s politics of OPEC. And OPEC at that time, it may not be, you know, we think of OPEC in a certain way now, but at, at, and it's become more dominated by Saudi Arabia since. But in the 70s, OPEC OPEC was a forum for the proliferation of of kind of leftish or developmentalist resource nationalist visions coming out of the the third world, right? Um, An idea that the third world had a right to um, manage and assert authority over its its resources and that it should aid the development of those countries rather than the world system or foreign capitalists. And this was very much the rhetoric that the Rodriguez Lara government used. Um, And it was of a piece of that broader moment that 
that you discussed in your interview with with Adam of the new international economic order, this moment of sort of third world solidarity and assertion of third world political economic power. And OPEC, in a way, interestingly, was one of the most successful artifacts of that moment, right? Because the the new international economic order sought to create uh, multiple such organizations related to different commodities that the that that global south uh, uh, countries export. But oil was was the one that got the most institutionalized. What happened then to Ecuador's oil politics under democratic and also neoliberal governments that followed the military government? And what role did neoliberalized resource politics play in provoking the rise of anti-neoliberal social movements like the CONAI? Yeah, so I realized I didn't answer one other part of your question, which is important, your prior question, which is important for, for this one. So you mentioned the, the resource nationalist ideology of, of the Rodriguez Lara government, um, this idea that the state should sort of control its resources and use it for the benefit of the people. And so in addition, in addition to bequeathing an institutional legacy of first and foremost of a state-owned oil company, which which outlives, you know, the, the military government, I'd also bequeathed an ideological legacy of resource nationalism. And and it's important to note at this juncture, because it can get a little subtle and confusing, that the version of resource nationalism that the Rodriguez Lara government, but also governments in Venezuela and, and in, throughout Latin America and throughout the global south, tended to have was not anti-capitalist. It was anti-imperialist, though. So it's interesting, you know, we can sort of tease that apart a bit. It was against the power of the core states, of the industrialized states, of, you know, the former colonial powers. But it was not per se anti-capitalist, right? And that's an important distinction because what happens under the period of neoliberal hegemony, that is after democratization takes place in 79, so starting kind of in the early 80s and up until Korea comes to power in 2007, so for a pretty long period of time, Ecuador is is ruled under a series of democratically elected governments, um, several of which are deposed from from power by by the indigenous movement and its allies, but that all shared a basically neoliberal orientation to the economy. And in that neoliberal period, which very much also related to how oil was governed, right? So there were attempts at privatization, at deregulation, uh, building privately owned pipelines. And I use the word attempts intentionally because not all of these worked out, but they were the policy goals of the governments, but they were from the outset deeply contested. And they were contested under the banner of radical resource nationalism. So what movements did, and a lot of this is the oil workers union, it's also the indigenous movement at both the the national and, and regional scales and other popular movements that they were in alliance with. What they did was inherit this legacy of resource nationalism, inherit this ideological legacy, its symbolic repertoire, the equation of the nation with its resources, the idea that those resources should serve the people, a sort of popular sense of who the people are, like the masses. They they inherit that from the dictatorship, but they radicalize it. And they radicalize it, it specifically in conflict and in contradistinction with the neoliberal form of resource governance that to varying degrees rules over, over Ecuador and its oil sector uh, for those decades. And they radicalize it in the direction of anti-capitalism. And they make the connection between the, um, you know, imperial, you know, imperial world order and the capitalist mode of accumulation. And what they call for 
power. And this is, as I said, it's the Oil Workers Union, but it's also the National Indigenous Federation that has come up several times in our in our conversation. What they call for is the expropriation of oil uh, resources from private foreign hands into the public for state-owned uh, resource companies that will be dedicated to using resource rents to to lift up the, the economic fortunes of the masses. They even get more radical than that. So, so far I've put this in anti-capitalist terms, and then they also think of it in democratic terms. So it's not just about um, having state ownership, but it's about democratizing, right? So thinking about what would a democratically managed oil company look like um, that served the interests of of the 99%, you know, to put it in those terms, of, of the people writ large. And so the, the kind of emergence of this radical resource nationalism is partly an inheritance from the past, but it's partly also an innovation in um, in resistance to an, a conjuncture of, of ruling class elite forces that had aligned themselves uh, behind neoliberalism. The the history of Ecuador's indigenous movement is also key here in terms of understanding how the indigenous movement makes this turn under Correa from radical resource nationalism to anti-extractivism. You have highland or Andean indigenous organizing beginning all the way back in the 1930s when rural peasant organizations allied with urban leftists to fight what was then the dominant hacienda system which then ends in 1964 under the military government, under a different military government, which then lays the groundwork for the 1972 foundation of the Highland Indigenous Federation, Equadanati, which remains the largest indigenous federation in the country. But meanwhile, in the Amazon, there's this distinct but parallel process of indigenous organization that emerged, in your words, quote, in response to the dual threats of colonization and oil exploration among the Seroyaku, Ashwar, and Shuar peoples. And that led to the creation of the first Amazon indigenous organization, the Organization of Indigenous Peoples of Pastaza, or OPEEP, in 1978. And then, in 1980, the Amazon-wide federation Confinai in 1980. How did these parallel but pretty distinct processes of organization How did they compare to each other and how did their merger creating the Confederación de Nacionalidades Indígenas del Ecuador or CONAI in 1986, how did it create such a powerful and unified force and how did it weave together both this radical resource nationalism that you're talking about and also from the Amazon, this nascent anti-extractivism? So it, it's it's a really interesting history of a, the parallel formation of two distinctly territorialized uh, indigenous movements that then come together, join forces to become, as discussed, the most powerful social movement in Ecuador and at certain moments in, in the hemisphere. And the, the two trajectories are important. And, and I'll get into a little more detail on, on the points you've already raised, but I want to make a broader point to begin with, which is that this particularities of how the in national indigenous movement came to formation in Ecuador, part of what made it so powerful is the way that class-based demands, what we think of demands that relate to ownership, to property, to, to labor, to, to class relations and the means of production, to class sort of based demands, with demands that center on ethnicity, on language, and on cultural self-determination. Those two sets of demands and bases of, of, of collective identity 
were at various moments, you know, interwoven, were one maybe prevailed over the other. But the fact that we have both of those types of demands deeply embedded in the indigenous movement is a, an artifact of this parallel trajectory of the Amazon and the Andean movements, um, and B, an, an important pa- part of its broader political power and its eventual ability to articulate a broad popular block that went beyond self-identified indigenous communities to include labor unions and neighborhood associations and you know, all sorts of, of popular movements that did not per se identify as indigenous. So I just want to sort of s- set that stage a little bit. So just to briefly, you know, uh, summarize because you, you, your question I think laid it out quite well. In the Andes, um, in the highlands, right in the mountainous region, and this is where the capital Quito is, and and also the region of the country that had been first and most deeply incorporated into the Spanish Empire, right? That is where the Spanish conquest took place, and that is where the seat of, of Spanish power, you know, was in, in in Ecuador. And so you have this long history as a result of the politics of of colonialism and conquest and independence of tense, conflictual relationships between the indigenous masses and the Creole elites, right? The, the, uh, you know, American born, but Spanish descendant elites that held political and economic power. And these conflicts had a political dimension to them, right? Because the masses were excluded, but they had a really important economic dimension to them, which was conflicts over land access. You had an extremely unequal land tenure, uh, conflicts over deep labor exploitation, a sort of semi-feudalized kind of, you know, people being tied to the land in all sorts of ways and debt peonage and, you know, similar, these are familiar from, from the U.S. and, you know, the Jim Crow system as well, you know, all, so- all sorts of means of, of sort of extra economic exploitation as well. So you had conflicts that that had a real clear class dimension to them. And peasant unions formed. Those peasant unions had relationships also with explicitly ideologically left formations, socialist and, and communist. And I really recommend the work of of, uh, of Mark of the historian Mark Becker on this fascinating deep dive into um, the relationship between indigenous and ideologically left uh, uh, politics in, in Ecuador. And, you know, you have various state reformist attempts to dismantle the, the system of, of um, extremely unequal and semi-feudal kind of land ownership. And those attempts were uh, not to create an egalitarian society, but to kind of assert kind of some state presence and, and reduce the, the, the power of these landowners, right? And in the mix of this, as I said, you have peasant unions, you have uh, communities starting to self-organize uh, and and eventually kind of self, self-govern at the local level. So... Out of all of that trajectory comes what you mentioned, Ecuadorari, the Highland Indigenous Federation, with its deep roots in in peasant organizing and in, in a sort of class based formation, and the whole time weaving through the the class demands uh, attention to forms of ethnic discrimination as well. I don't want to say that it was black and white; it was just class based, but it class was the bigger you know the bigger or the primary category. In the Amazon, you have a very different trajectory where the indigenous movement arises not out of conflicts in the agricultural sector over land and labor, but more as a response to, as you quoted me, this dual threat. On the one hand, as I mentioned previously, state-led colonization of the Amazon, which was the state's attempt uh, first in the 1960s, again in the 1970s under the Rodriguez Lara dictatorship, to populate the Amazon more densely with highland people, some of which were mestizo, meaning mixed, you know, heritage, 
and some of which were highland indigenous people to kind of incentivize them with cheap land and credit and loans and you know to move kind of similar to the kind of frontier uh, in in the US to kind of incentivize them. and the process was called colonization Exactly. It was officially called colonization. And the people who moved there were called colonos. Exactly. Colonists. colonists. Exactly. And, you know, these were not upper class people for the most part at all. The majority of them were, you know, working class or maybe lower middle class or whatever, but they were seeking economic opportunity in the Amazon uh, with state support. But as, as they arrive in the Amazon, they encounter indigenous communities, nations, peoples that had been relatively autonomous and actually their communities lived in sort of large swaths of territory for hunting, for fishing, for ceremonial purposes, for living, for agriculture, right? And so they had, you know, these territorialized, um, well-developed, you know, cultural systems that that were now coming into direct conflict with uh, a colonizing force, right? It wasn't the Spanish, you know, colonizing them, but it it, it felt, you know, similar. Um, and it was, as you said, called colonization. And then around the same time, and again, this is under that military government with the expansion of oil extraction under the ambit of the state, you have a, a lot of extractive activities starting. So you have oil extraction, but you also have logging, you also have agriculture. And it's always important to keep in mind with extractive activity and with mega agriculture, the infrastructural requirements of this. So you have road building, you have new forms of transportation and communications, and you know, you have a whole, you know, socio-technical infrastructure to support this, which also, you know, threatens the the territorial um, ambit of these indigenous peoples and nations. So the radicalization of indigenous peoples in the Amazon is, is first and foremost about the territorial and cultural threat posed by extraction, the territorial and cultural threat posed by extraction. And I'm sort of dwelling on that and underlining it because those themes the way in which extraction undermines the territorial and cultural integrity of indigenous peoples become the the very important and salient themes of later militant anti-extractivism that I discuss sort of later, you know, as, as the book unfolds. But they are really articulated in this moment beginning in the 1970s. And so out of that, you have the Amazonian indigenous federation that forms. And then these leaders of these two federations, Highland and Amazonian, come together, they form the National Federation. And, you know, a couple of just quick points at the end here of, of how this, why this National Federation is so powerful. I've already talked about how it was able to, especially with the combination of Amazonian and Andean indigenous groups, weave together class and ethnic demands, class cultural grievances and economic grievances in a way that was just a very kind of holistic understanding of what the nature of oppression of indigenous peoples was. It had multiple facets. It was, as we say, intersectional, right? And so, but articulating that explicitly is a form of political power. You know, the ability to, to really identify what the multiple forms of oppression was. So that lent it its strength. Another thing that lends it its strength, and, and you can get the sense in, in the history that I laid out, is the way that was really built from the ground up, literally through peasant unions, through local, you know, forms of indigenous self-government, from the territories of the Amazon um, and the cultural systems therein, right? It was built from base, and then it built up to a provincial level. Provinces are the subnational units in Ecuador. It then built to a regional level, highland and Amazonian, and then it built to a national level. And there is nothing that makes a movement, or for that matter, a political party, stronger than deep territorialization, than having layers of multiple scales of internal, you know, governance, decision making, and mobile 
and mobilizing capacity. And, you know, just as my final point here, the mobilizing capacity became immediately clear in just a few years after the National Indigenous Formation uh, Federation formed in 1986. In 1990, you have the first nationwide Indigenous uprising. In 1992, you have the next nationwide Indigenous uprising. In 1994, in 97 and 98, there were several more, right? So you have one after the other massive uprisings that were able to mobilize across the country, both in situ and bringing people into the capital in ways that Creole, European descendant elites had never seen before. And though the Indigenous movement is putting forward what you call this key conceptual innovation, this idea of a plurinational polity, a pluri and create refounding Ecuador as a plurinational state. It's also in the 1990s at the lead of a quote, broad block of the oppressed alongside the Coordinadora de Movimientos Sociales. And you write, quote, at this juncture, Conay's political project was at once at once indigenista and popular democratic. The Federation claimed to speak on behalf of a broad block of the oppressed, conceived of in both democratic, the people, and class, the poor, terms, and defined against a class of political economic elites, the oligarchy. The identity articulation was not purely aspirational. It reflected on-the-ground alliances between indigenous and non-indigenous groups. You've already touched on this a bit, but what was it about the politics of the neoliberal 90s that allowed the Konai to emerge as such a force not only on behalf of indigenous people, but on behalf of the oppressed majority of Ecuador. A couple of points there. One is that from the very beginning, that first indigenous uprising in 1990, immediately its, its key demands that it put on the table were both ethnic and class in character. And that is important because especially the class versions of those demands had a possibility of articulating with other groups, right, of groups that also experienced the same forms of class oppression, though not the ethnic forms of discrimination and marginalization, as, as indigenous nations and peoples did, right? So from the very beginning, the Konai in 1990, before before, importantly, it even had organizational links with um, with other popular sector groups. It was putting forth demands that other groups could see themselves in. And so that's that's important. And then as time goes on, both as the Konai gains strength and political protagonism and it's doing uprising after uprising and bringing people into the capital and really rocking, you know, political elites as that's happening. What I mentioned earlier in the interview, the neoliberal hegemony is beginning to consolidate. So elites are getting more committed to neoliberalism. And this is a domestic story. It's a regional story and it's a global story, right? So we know that neoliberalism was a, is a global phenomena, um, but there were particular reasons that it was a useful kind of ideology to Latin American domestic elites um, who very much saw it as a way to undermine and dismantle the forms of popular power that had been achieved earlier in the century. So you have this articulation of neoliberalism, of a free market, deregulated, no state help for the poor kind of, you know, economy in alliance with international financial institutions like the IMF. And that really gets strongly articulated around 1994 in Ecuador. And it's in that moment that the Konai 
begins to formalize its alliances with a broader array of popular sector groups, which have their own kind of alliance formation, which is the social movement coordinator. And so the Konai enters into direct relationship with these other movements. And then they're sort of like unstoppable. I mean, they're, again, deposing multiple presidents, as I've said, they are really limiting in important ways, the ability of multiple neoliberal governments to implement their full program of neoliberalism. Like some of these governments want to, for example, you know, privatize the state-owned oil company and they're unable to, right? I don't want to say that neoliberalism wasn't achieved. It was, but it was not achieved to the degree that elites had hoped. And that was because of this broad popular sector alliance that, as you noted, mobilized under the banner of a broad popular identity of, you know, a heterogeneous block of the oppressed. The the idea that, you know, the oppressed have multiple forms of oppression, but what they share in common is being excluded from uh, the political system, from the economic system. They have in common their their exploitation, their marginalization, their dispossession. It may take different forms depending on their social location, but they can ally around that. And what, what is interesting and what is kind of unique about Ecuador, I think, is the way in which the indigenous movement, and remember what I was saying about how the indigenous movement itself identified multiple oppression, oppressions and articulated its own internal intersectionality. And that, I think, was key to its ability to connect to a broader way of, array of other popular movements. And that's it's sort of like the, the lesson from, from the, the Kambahi statement, which, which um, you've discussed on in prior interviews, that the point of identifying intersectionality is not to sort of isolate in discrete containers of, of identities, but rather to identify the conditions and possibilities of solidarity. And that is what the Konai did so successfully over so many years. And the Ecuador experience is distinct from Bolivia's because in Bolivia, you see mass indigenous movements, but emerging often in the form of militant labor movements. Right. In in Bolivia, the, the history of the indigenous movement is actually in a way a little more closely tied to that of, of, of various types of labor unions. So further back in history, you have a very militant mining, uh, mine, mine workers union and association. And we know from U.S. history, you know, how militant mining workers uh, unions tend to be. Right. And they were like Trotskyist and like, you know, like very in the thick of, of, of anti-imperialist, and anti-capitalist politics of, of the day, you know, on an international scale. And then you had the emergence later on, interestingly, with the involvement of many of those miners who had been laid off when the mine, when that state-owned wine company was privatized in 1985. So a lot of those miners in search of work went to the coca growing region of Bolivia and they replicated their really militant, um, somewhat hierarchical, kind of very politically and economically effective union formation in, co- in the coca growing sector. And that is the precise sector and union formation that Morales uh, emerges from. And others went to El Alto. Exactly. And others went to El Alto. Yeah, it's it's a fascinating history in, in Bolivia of of miners kind of carrying with them their collective memory of of discipline and coordination and anti-capitalist unionism to various other parts of the country and sectors of the economy once they were you know massively laid off um, from the, the formerly state-owned uh, mining company. Well, moving back north up the Andes uh, to where the heart of our interview lies, during this period prior to Korea, you write you, you write that there was, quote, a nascent rejection of oil-led development that coexisted alongside calls to nationalize oil resources. 
the hegemony of neoliberal policies allowed for this provisional alignment of social movement organizations with such distinct political trajectories and positions on extraction. What role did resource politics play in this period of social movement, powerful social movement organization led by the Konai prior to Korea's rise? And how was it that neoliberalism's hegemony allowed anti-extractivism and radical resource nationalism, which would later under Korea come into such intense conflict, allowed those two things to coexist and even productively coexist? So I think that, you know, one one thing that I could have said earlier um, when we were talking about the articulation of the Konai and broader uh, a broader popular bloc, I emphasized a lot the role of the Konai's uh, discourse and tactics um, and organizational forms in, in articulating that. But I could have also emphasized the role of neoliberalism in providing uh, or in constituting a unified target of various grievances, right? And and the way in which elites kind of rallying together on the, under the banner of free market reforms was kind of helpful, you know, ironically and not not intentionally, of course, in unifying popular forces because there were so many different things wrong with neoliberalism. You know, obviously created poverty and unemployment. It destroyed labor unions. It also led to environmental devastation due to the forms of deregulation. It uh, allowed, you know, foreign capital to uh, to kind of control large swaths of the economy. Many different, you know, social positions could find a problem with neoliberalism and, and, and they did. So neoliberalism was part of what allowed for the provisional unity of distinct critiques of capitalism, of distinct critiques of neoliberalism and distinct critiques of extraction and what's wrong with extraction. One of those critiques of extraction we've already discussed is a resource nationalist critique that got radicalized, especially by the role of the oil workers union, which was quite militant. They literally put their bodies on the line to protest against the privatization of of, uh, various aspects of the oil sector, to protest against the building of a privately owned pipeline. And one oil worker described it to me in an interview as like, imagine a corporation owns the veins in your body. Like that is how they viewed foreign control of the oil sector, right? Dramatic terms and a dramatic and militant rejection of of capital's control of the oil sector. So that's radical resource nationalism. That was in full, in its full form in, in the late 90s and early 2000s. But there was this other critique of extraction beginning to percolate. And it wasn't quite nationally resonant yet, but it was very rooted in the experience of Amazonian indigenous communities, peoples, and nations, right? The Shuar, the Achuar, Amazonian Quichua, um, who you mentioned earlier. And they are getting into increasing and also militant confrontation with oil companies and with the state, um, both state bureaucrats, but also like the state-owned oil companies. So they're in conflict with everyone that's trying to extract oil. And the reason this conflict sets off is because in this neoliberal moment with um, uh, various forces pushing in favor of expanding extraction, right? You have the IMF and World Bank promoting this. You have the government promoting this. You have the corporations promoting this. Oil extraction moves from its traditional lo- location in the north northern Amazon to the southern Amazon. And remember I said at the beginning of this interview that when extraction, either it's a new sector or it is affecting new people and, and ecosystems, it becomes contentious in a different way. And that is exactly what happened in the southern Amazon um, starting in the, in the 90s and, and 2000s, which is that 
groups that hadn't previously been in direct contact with um, with oil extraction uh, face the threat to their territory, their indigenous territory, cultural integrity, and their pre-existing livelihoods. And they, you know, use all the militant tactics in the book, including in one case, kind of kidnapping uh, or like not detaining, I'll put it that way. Kidnapping was the more sensational way to put it in the news, but detaining like oil executives and government officials that were trying to meet to to expand oil extraction in, in the Southern Amazon. So you have this emergence of more militant anti-oil activism in the Amazon. Now, it's not initially articulated as like a critique of the entire, you know, extractive model of development. It is more articulated as like the specific threat of oil and its threat not to everything, but to indigenous territorial and cultural integrity. And the demand is not necessarily an end to all, all oil extraction, but that indigenous peoples have a voice and a veto power over oil extraction, that they, you know, that they exercise some political authority over it. But Interestingly, there do every so often emerge demands like maybe we should just have a moratorium on oil. And so I think that, you know, listeners can see that this is the seeds of a more oppositional stance to extraction in contradistinction to radical resource nationalism, which is more about the people owning and democratizing and taking out of the hands of capital resource sectors. This is like no extraction at all. And importantly, it's articulated not just against foreign companies, like the resource nationalism is, but also against the state because it very much sees the state's role in opening up new frontiers to accumulation by oil-driven dispossession. As you've referenced already, the Konai played a key role in ousting Presidents Abdullah Bukaram in 1997 and Jamil Makhwad in 2000. But then they suffered a huge blow to their power, influence, credibility, after they backed Lucio Gutierrez, who first as a colonel had backed the 2000 coup against Maquad, but then after he was elected president in, 20, in 2003, he embraced neoliberalism and became extremely unpopular. And so Juanayi was on the margins when this movement known as the Forajidos ousted Gutierrez. This was the movement that then forms the basis of Correa's campaign. And you write, quote, Notably, neither Conai, which had hitherto been the main articulator of political discontent and coordinator of protest, nor existing leftist political organizations, played a role in this particular rebellion. Nonetheless, Correa went on to, quote, redeploy the very critique of neoliberalism voiced by Conai and their popular sector allies over the past decade and a half. What did it mean for the Forajidos rather than the Conai to be the proximate push for Ecuador's entry into the pink tide? And, and what did that in turn mean for what sort of party Alianza País was founded to be? Yeah, so it's a complex history and a fast moving one. And every couple of years, there's a big, you know, turning point or, or, or pivot. Um, and I sometimes have it, trouble keeping it all in my in my own head. But basically, in the late 1990s, you had a few years of deep economic crisis in, in Ecuador. There was a hyperinflation crisis. There was, you know, widespread immiseration due in part to neoliberal reforms, but also to economic mismanagement. And the Konai decides to support a coup attempt against the government in power that presided over this hyperinflation crisis and that also presided over the dollarization of Ecuador, which was intended to end the hyperinflation crisis. So Ecuador uses uses the U.S. dollar. And so 
Lucio Gutierrez uh, wants to do a coup against the government. The CONAI supports them. It's a very short-lived coup, but it does, like, like Lucio Gutierrez doesn't take power, but it does result in, in the vice president, you know, st- the president resigning and the vice president stepping in. But this was the beginning of what in the indigenous activist that I quote in, in the book, Monica Chuhi, calls the most contradictory moment of the indigenous movement in Ecuador because they supported a coup that didn't really work um, in the sense that it didn't bring like a left wing government to power military or otherwise. What happened a few years later is that the leader of that coup, Gutierrez, ran for president on a popular kind of populist, we might say, incohate, but but not explicitly neoliberal political program. Then he immediately bait and switches and institutes neoliberal reforms. So the CONAI looks bad first for supporting a coup, then for supporting a government's, uh, uh, the election of Gutierrez, uh, who then um, betrays them by not only by instituting neoliberalism, but by really intentionally and to some extent successfully co-opting certain indigenous leaders um, by offering them positions in government, a government that then would come under criticism of the indigenous movement. Because then, you know, shortly thereafter, Gutierrez was forced to resign. So remember earlier I referred to, you know, multiple presidents being deposed. But this time, as you mentioned, the government was forced to resign, not primarily because of the CONAI, which had lost some of its political capacity for the reasons just described, but by a sort of somewhat incohate movement, um, kind of set of street protests that like lots of different people participated from more obvious left wing, you know, forces to to like the mayor of Quito, I think, participated like, you know, everyone was sort of out in the streets because Gutierrez was was so terrible and had like betrayed his campaign promises so clearly. And it is out of that moment of sort of working and middle class, uh, left and establishment kind of rejection of Gutierrez and and in a way like more clear rejection of neoliberalism, because that is, you know, what he had done to, to betray his, his promises, that the possibility of Correa running for office emerges. And, you know, I think that we see some of that that lack of a clear ideological articulation and that lack of a um, of a clear social base in what becomes Correa's political party, Alianza País, which is less a political party than a electoral electoral vehicle for various reasons in Ecuadorian electoral law. It's actually easy to form these kind of parties that are not really parties that can like political movements or something they're called there that that can just bring people to that that can be on the on on the ballot but they don't necessarily have you know deeply institutionalized uh organizational form and so alianza país basically is created so that correa this former finance minister who had a reputation for being heterodox and progressive and for railing against you know the debt and and U.S. imperialism and the lack of social spending, right? So he had this lefty reputation, and this and Alianza País is, is created for him to come to power. And you know what is the indigenous movement doing this moment, which was kind of the the, the crux of your question. The indigenous movement was not super active in a leadership role in the in the uh, street rebellions that that eventually led to Correa's rise to power. They were not totally inactive, though, at this moment. And I just want to point out that a few months after the Forajidos rebellion, they helped organize massive protests in the capital against Free Trade Area America, Free Trade Area Americas, which was the attempt to exp- free trade area of the Americas. 
of the Americas, thank you, <laughs> which was the attempt to like uh, expand NAFTA, um, you know, to the entire hemisphere, right? Um, failed attempt. And so they came out in, in forceful protest against the free trade area of the Americas. But they also couched that in anti-colonial language because it was also the a protest against the commemoration of Spanish conquest in October of 2005, right? So the Konai wasn't really involved in the, in the protest that led to Korea coming to power, but it was still active and it was attempting to rearticulate and find its political voice after this period of kind of its legitimacy crisis for supporting that coup. But Korea comes to power with this broad, um, you know, backing of of many parts of of the population, with a promise to fundamentally shift Ecuador's economic and political direction away from neoliberalism, and with importantly the critical support of the Konai. They were not. He didn't run through the indigenous, uh, you know, their indigenous political party, Pachakutik. He didn't come from the Konai. He's not indigenous, but he, they didn't reject him. They, they had this sort of critical stance vis-a-vis Korea. And in fact, there was this moment, and I discovered this with some, uh, to, to my own surprise, through archival work, that the Konai and Korea were planning on running on a ticket together, but it fell apart, partly because of Korea's personality. He doesn't, really work well with others. I'll just put it that way. Um, and he refused to have <laughs> strong personality strong, um, uh, has its pros and cons. Um, and he refused specifically to allow for primaries for candidate selection because he didn't want the possibility of him being like the vice president. If he got the second most votes, he wanted to be on the top of the ticket. But there was a moment in which the indigenous movement and Korea were going to run together on a ticket. And that fell apart for somewhat idiosyncratic reasons. Right. So nothing history is always contingent to some degree, right? And so what happened is the Konai, you know, supports him, you know, I would, I would guess I haven't, you know, done a deep dive on the electoral, you know, demographics, but I would guess, you know, the vast majority of their members voted for him. But when he comes to power, they make it clear what their demands are. Like, remember, you, you promised to, to dismantle and transcend neoliberalism. You also promised a constituent assembly to rewrite the constitution. This had been a longstanding demand of the Konai. The Konai had played a major role in politicizing the constitution, meaning in bringing to popular attention the fact that constitutions are documents that support certain political and economic orders. And the constitution had been re- rewritten a decade prior in 97, 98 which was connected to that trajectory of indigenous uprisings. They had really put the demand on the table for a new constitution. They did not by any means get everything they wanted in it, but they did leave their imprint on it. And they said that was not enough. We need a really like post-neoliberal constitution, like one that that takes Ecuador into a new um, political economic period. And um, Correa responded to that demand, which had that, at that point, because of the Konai's mobilizing work, had become a widespread popular demand for a new constitution. And he installs, a, a, he, he sets up elections so to install a, a constituent assembly, popular, you know, democratically elected. And they get to work in 2007 in rewriting the constitution and, and in coming up with what constitutional scholars agree is one of the most, if not the most, progressive constitution in the world in terms of not in terms of the 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 way in which it it makes clear that popular sovereignty and democracy is the foundation of the state it sets out a whole array of new collective economic political and cultural rights um, that are not just individual but applied to collectivities so it departs from liberal constitutionalism in that way and it departs from all constitutionalisms because it also gives legal standing to nature and empowers human individuals and communities to go to court on nature's behalf when those rights of nature are violated. Before we get deeper into the Ecuador's constituent 
Assembly, I just wanted to step back and ask what role constituent assemblies played in the pink tide in general, because three countries had them, Ecuador, Bolivia, and Venezuela. As we continue to see in Chile today, why in Latin America is exercising this form of constituent power deemed such a consistent priority for the left? Yeah, I, I really just want to recommend the work of another scholar on this point, and then I'll, I'll, I'll answer the question. But Angelica Bernal has, has written really beautifully on constituent politics in Latin America and on specifically on the pink tide moment of those constituent politics. And I think that p- part of answering your question is, is just getting outside of the blinders of American exceptionalism, which, you know, really affects all of our viewpoints, you know, even on the left. And so I think in the U.S. it seems so odd and unusual um, and dramatic to like rewrite the constitution because we've been living under this document for hundreds of years. And and even on the left, there are rarely calls, um, or not recently at least, uh, I think maybe historically there were, but and I know Aziz Rana is, is working on this right now um, in his new book, but there are, in the contemporary left, I don't see calls to like rewrite the constitution. Uh, you know, even as people are saying abolish the electoral college, the Senate, you know, but but the constitution has this like sacredness in, in some way. And in, in many other countries in the world, it's not that way. There has been, you know, more dramatic changes in regime type, um, which opens up the possibility and the opportunity to rewrite constitutions. Um, movements um, of various sorts have seen const- constitutions really as living documents and as documents that sometimes need to be scrapped and rewritten. And Latin America America is part of what I would say is more common in the rest of the world rather than it being unusual to Latin America. But very much, I think, because of the influence of the indigenous movement and the way in which the indigenous movement articulated the foundations of oppression and exploitation uh, for so many years, like what the kind of legal, political, juridical foundations of those were, that they articulated that intersectional critique of the entire political economic order, they were drawn to the idea of rewriting the constitution as a way to refound Ecuador, refound it in a way that would fundamentally break from its colonial Creole, you know, the various forms of elite power that had shaped it so fundamentally, but also break from neoliberalism because they very much understood that like capitalism in general, but neoliberalism in particular has a certain legal basis, right? It's encoded into the law, into the regulatory state in various ways. And you need to actually like undo that to create a social state, to create a democratic state. Um, And I think there's also a way in which they saw the constituent assembly, and this again reverberates in Bolivia and Venezuela, the other places you mentioned, they I saw the Constituent Assembly as an important venue to articulate a variety of popular demands, just like the, the occurrence and the unfolding of the Constituent Assembly itself provided this forum to debate deep questions that movements had been bringing to public attention for many years. And so I think that there was something about like the institutional setting of a Constituent Assembly that was appealing to them. And it, it, it really, we could debate, and I debate a bit in the book uh, or discuss in the book, how much the Constitution like, you know, totally transformed Ecuador. But it did absolutely provide a new set of rights that became and, and sort of political orientations that had a sort of new legitimacy to them because of being encoded in the Constitution. And it gave movements a new set of languages and symbols and a kind of new discursive repertoire that, again, had legitimacy because it was in the Constitution. And so it it more so than totally refounding the state of Ecuador, not that it didn't, in certain ways it did, but more so than that, it gave legitimacy to a lot of movement claims and it it allowed them to articulate 
portray themselves, social movements, particularly the indigenous movement, as the defenders of the Constitution, which I think is is interesting when we think of the dynamics of conflict between the state and movements, that movements put themselves in the position of being the defenders of a popular constitution. I'm Aziz Rana, and you're listening to The Dig, a great place for analysis about where we are, how we got here, and what can be done. It's my favorite podcast, and you can support it at patreon.com. This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our supporters at patreon.com and by N Plus One Magazine which features some of the most urgent and exciting political writing, essays, fiction, and cultural criticism on the left today. N Plus One's brand new issue, Death Wish, is now available in print and online, and it is full of great pieces that Dig listeners will enjoy. One that might be of particular interest is Consequences of Deferred Maintenance, an essay by the editors. The piece situates the Trump administration's mismanagement of the pandemic within a longer history of deregulation from the right. Quote, The deregulatory impulse has a distinctly temporal quality, instilling the slow seep of future degradation even as immediate consequences are typically non-existent, the editors write. Killing long days by walking across New York's many structurally deficient bridges, it occurred to us that this is how COVID has felt too. Even if deregulation is only one of a litany of factors that led to the U.S.'s inability to respond to the pandemic in a responsible or even minimally humane way. This month, Dig listeners can take 25% off a subscription at nplusonemag.com slash the dig. Enter the dig at checkout, the dig, one word, no spaces, T-H-E-D-I-G. Enter that at checkout to get three issues delivered in the mail, plus full access to the magazine's online archive, all for less than $3 a month. That's N-P-L-U-S-O-N-E-M-A-G dot com slash the dig. Enter the dig at checkout. Ecuador's Constituent Assembly, quote, provided a venue for the articulation of two political projects, a nascent anti-extractivism and radical resource nationalism. The final text of the 2008 Constitution retains vestiges of both. It empowers communities affected by extraction, and it grants rights to nature. It also asserts the state's exclusive control over subsoil resources and biodiversity itself. When the assembly was convened, resource extraction did not yet divide the left. But soon after it convened, it did. How did this divide begin to emerge in the assembly's debates? And then how did those debates shape the divides and conflicts that would follow, particularly over what it meant to exercise democratic control over Korea's proposed creation of a large-scale mining sector. So in, in contrast, I think, to some of the ways that some other scholars study these constituent moments, right, these moments of refounding, of reauthorization, of creating a new basis of political legitimacy, I think of these moments, and I think it's very clear in the case of Ecuador, but I think we could we could um, go elsewhere with this analysis, as like opening rather than closing political questions. What it does is create a new terrain, a new set of terms that are available, new sources of legitimacy that different actors can claim. So it's like the beginning of a new cycle 
of contention rather than the closing and settling of, of a cycle of contention, right? And so this is very much the case in, in the Constituent Assembly in Ecuador where um, these big questions were raised, uh, as, I, as I mentioned, and, and in large part because of the intellectual influence of the indigenous, the national indigenous movement. Uh, these questions of what is the relationship between the state and the nation? big question. Like, is there, you know, where you think of the nation state, like there's a single nation and there's a state or single national people and a single political apparatus. Well, the Konai disagreed with that. They said, we live in a plurinational state. We live in, there's one state, sure, but there are many different nations that it represents and interacts with. So plurinationalism was a term that that the Konai sort of imported into the Constituent Assembly. Another was in Quichua, it's it's sumac causai, and in Spanish, it's buen vivir, and in English, it's living well, which is this concept that is in opposition and in critique of traditional forms of development and developmentalism, that the goal should not be economic growth or endless accumulation or consumerism. The goal should be living well, should be some kind of harmony um, within human communities and between human communities and nature, right? So that was another big set of debates that, that and, and these terms made it in, you know, to the, the final document, but, but they made it into it through a set of political conflicts that in some cases divided members of Alianza País, Korea's party, against one another. And so one of the interesting points of conflict that I dwell on a lot in the book that um, split apart members of Alianza País was this question of how much power should local communities have over resource extraction? So again, you see the beginnings of extraction becoming this divisive, this intra-left kind of divisive issue. And some members of Alianza País and also members of the indigenous party that I mentioned earlier, Pachacutic and some other left parties, wanted a really strong form of local territorial autonomy in which directly affected communities would not just have to be consulted if a extractive firm or the state wanted to extract resources in their territory, but they would have to give their consent, prior consent. But the majority of Alianza País supported what the president supported, and he actually intervened a lot on this question and, and helped kind of whip his votes, which was that they should be just consulted, and not only just consulted, but uh, ultimately the state really has the ultimate authority there, and that's how the clause is written. So these these fissures open up over the relationship between state and nation, humans and nature, local and national, and, and they all hinge, or they increasingly hinge on the question of what movements begin to call extractivism, which is what they begin to name the political economic system that they live under. They, they stop talking about neoliberalism as much, and they begin to talk about extractivism. Because for them, neoliberalism lost some of its critical traction when the Korea government self-identified as not just post-neoliberal, but socialist. And so they said, well, if a post-neoliberal government is going to push for extraction, which it, it did, uh, especially after the Constituent Assembly, which we can get to, um, if they're going to push for extraction, then there must be a deeper problem that also can infect left-wing governments. And that problem is extraction activism. And a year after the, or several months actually, after the Constituent Assembly closes and the, the Constitution is ratified, Correa, you know, pushes through with, with the help of, you know, his, his legislators in, in, in Congress, pushes through a, a bill that is the new national mining law that sets the framework for the, for the inauguration of large-scale mining in Ecuador. So just months after the Constituent Assembly and all of these rights had been won for nature, for Buen Vivir, Plurinationalism, all of these things, the indigenous movement immediately turns around and has to confront 
the threat of the massive expansion of extractive activity and of a specific extractive sector that is extremely land intensive that would result in the dispossession and has resulted in the dispossession of entire communities. And they do so by embracing the Constitution as their own, even after the Konai only critically supported the 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 referendum approving the constitution they had a si critico camp campaign yeah and i think it it this this is a good moment to pause and just return to some of the earlier themes of of the interview which is just about the dilemmas and the tensions and the trade-offs of the left coming to power and what movements do and, and the konai like threaded this needle in various ways over time their initial response to having a left-wing government in power that did not come from indigenous movements did not come from any social movement was a left-wing technocrat um their initial response was like support but critical yes but critical that's how they responded to the election of korea and that's how they responded to the ratification of the constitution because the constitution didn't contain all of their demands What's interesting is that as soon as the constitution is ratified, they kind of drop the critical part because they realize very intelligently that the constitution is an extremely powerful tool to defend their rights and territories and livelihoods against the encroachment of extractivism. And so they put aside the fact that they didn't get everything they want, like they wanted, for example, the indigenous language Quechua to be at the same level as Spanish, you know, in the as a national language, it's designated slightly differently um, in the constitution. So and they didn't win prior consent that prior consultation won instead of consent so they didn't win everything they wanted and some of the but they sort of acted like they'd won prior consent they acted like they've won because the constitution they took on as their own they they realized and they knew how much the constitution itself was the outcome of trajectories of popular struggle and they were not going to let the government kind of own the constitution even though it wasn't entirely made in their in you know the image of the indigenous movement so they claimed it as a tool of legitimacy they claimed it as a set of symbolic and discursive resources of a uh, new legal language um and they took it to the streets and to the the territories and used it as a, as a as a, they used it tactically to defend territories against extraction they elevated the i think in doing so they they really like gave life to the constitution it was not a dead document it was living and it was not just any type of living document it lived through the contentious activity of grassroots movements Korea of course did not attempt to engineer a green exit from the world system a system that confines countries like Ecuador to primary commodity goods exports instead he tried to take advantage of the commodity boom by expanding large scale mining but did Korea's environmentalist opponents and indigenous opponents did they have a concrete idea for how such an exit such an an, an Ecuador without extraction how that might happen and in your opinion is such an exit is it even possible at all can you have green socialism in one poor country within an oil-fueled capitalist world system the answer to that last question is is no and i don't mean that in a pessimistic or like nihilist sense like it's not worth it to fight for such things in given contexts and countries but rather that in order for ecuador to transition out of so-called extractivism changes at the regional and global scale would need to occur and i think it's a really important thing for the us left to think about the us left i think has unfortunately um over the past few decades really lost its like internationalism and its orientation to the international and lost the idea that 
a lot of what we are struggling for. We are struggling for not just, you know, for forms of domestic, um, you know, the improvement of the material well-being domestically, but also for reasons of international and, and, and global justice. And so, no, I think that it's important to understand that the limitations of the pink tide were not just of their own making, were not just their own errors, were not just their own personality idiosyncrasies, but were also the parameters and constraints that they found themselves in. First and foremost, as I discussed earlier, they found themselves in national economies that had been thoroughly integrated into global economies in which foreign capital was thoroughly imbricated and in which like large swaths of territory had already been slated for extraction and for environmental ruin. And I think that there are there are always different choices that could be made, right? I, I think that, you know, there there were parts of the Korea government, and these were some of the bureaucrats that I found actually most interesting to speak to, that were deeply committed to a post-extractive transition. And that that laid out plans, um, uh, you know, really extensive and detailed plans for what a post-extractive economy might look like. But the question of like the fiscal resources, especially under conditions of debt, which Korea did did default on on some of Ecuador's debt, but Ecuador, you know, remains an indebted country on um, debt that I consider, you know, I illegitimate uh, and unsustainable. So, you know, under conditions of debt, under conditions of, you know, export dependency, under all of those conditions, there are limitations to what the, the government can do. And I think that like the most, the, the, the clearest way to think about this contradiction is when I talk to these bureaucrats that were committed to transitioning Ecuador to a post-extractive economy, Oftentimes, they would justify the expansion of extraction in the present. They would say, yes, we know mining is terrible and we're really worried about it and we do think it should be slowed down or limited or rights should be more respected. But mining is like our last chance. We have this commodity boom. You know, the money is flowing in. China is interested in our resources. Like we need to take advantage of this so that we can store up the resources to then invest in what they would refer to as like the knowledge sector. Um, so things like, you know, research, uh, uh, ecosystem and biological research. Ecuador is just like an incredibly biodiverse place. And so that was appealing to them. Things more in the service sector, like ecotourism, but again, related to Ecuador's biodiversity. So they had these visions for a kind of like eco economy, uh, but they felt like it was important to take advantage of the commodity boom in order to store up the resources for that. The problem is once you, you know, commit to to the expanding extractive frontier, you kind of you do get sort of like hooked into it. It's 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 challenging because of the nature of the boom and bust cycles. You can't control when the boom is going to end, and then all of a sudden you find yourselves without financial resources. And as happened under Korea, uh, austerity was imposed. Latin Americans, leftist and otherwise, have long embraced something called dependency theory to explain their country's place. In the world system. And, and that was the intellectual analog to an economic development model called import substitution industrialization, which before the neoliberal turn sought to move third world countries up the value chain and so break them out of this subordinated position within the world system. How was ISI displaced by neoliberalism decades ago? And why was it that the pink tide failed to revive that model or something like it. You write, quote, 
Fundamentally, if in the mid-century variant of developmentalism the goal was rapid industrialization, which would progressively reduce the share of the economy occupied by extraction while climbing the ladder of economic sophistication, the neo-developmentalism of the pink tide made peace with service sector-dominated labor markets and prioritized extraction over manufacturing, coordinating to protect prices, enforce standards for revenue sharing, or jointly adopt labor and environmental regulations, have competed for investment. They thus betrayed promises of regional integration and mutually reinforced their peripheral status. So I think the question as to why didn't the Pink Tide revive ISI um, or revive um, more developmentalist orientation that would have sought to industrialize. I, I sort of have already answered in terms of like neoliberalism had already so undermined the state's capacities to do so, had already so invited the foreign capital domination of those economies, had already so integrated those economies into global markets that, and you had a commodity boom. So the temptation to just use those resource rents rather than do long-term capital investments to create an industrial base, all of that conspired against the resuscitation of developmentalism in its classical sense. And, and so that's some of what we've, we've spoken about before. The, the reasons why that classical form of developmentalism took hold and then came up against con internal contradictions and also the extreme reaction of domestic and global ruling classes is, is I mean, obviously books, many books have been written on this. Um, and I think that also Christy Thornton's um, new book uh, speaks to a lot of this moment of sort of left-wing developmentalism coming out of the global South, specifically in the case of Mexico. But, you know, so there, there's so much to say here, um, but I'm just going to do a real quick kind of summary. You know, one of the things that, and, and this I think will help clarify why ISI imports substitution industrialization, which the idea of moving up the economic ladder of development by sequentially substituting goods or capital that had been imported with domestically produced versions of the same, um, and then becoming economically, you know, independent and powerful in that in that way. One of the global context that had initially helped ISI flourish in Latin America was a sort of temporary cutting off of Latin American countries from the world system and temporary de depressions in, in global trade. So I'm thinking of the Great Depression, of the interwar and war periods. And in those moments are the beginnings of this endogenous form of development that Latin American elites to varying degrees of success, I think most successfully in Brazil, Mexico and Argentina and, and Chile, um, to varying degrees of success, tried to industrialize, actually using in a positive way the opportunity of reduced trade with the global north. So immediately we see the contrast with the neoliberal period where there was no protection from the, you know, the onslaught of global capitalism or of the, the, the presence of global markets or foreign capital, right? So they had no protective kind of buffer. ISI, there's a lot to say about why it, it ultimately kind of foundered um, and why it was replaced by neoliberalism. Some of this is a political story, which I've referred to earlier, which is that the domestic ruling classes in concert also with, you know, their, their, the, with the U.S., with, um, you know, with, with foreign capital, really saw, eventually came to see ISI as a threat in certain contexts because it did create a more, it did result in or occasion a more organized working class. You have the development of manufacturing, you have industrial workers unions, and you have a more popular power, economic and political that came along with that. And so that 
that sort of began to be more threatening to to ruling classes. And part of, I'm simplifying a lot here, but part of the story of all of those right-wing dictatorships that we mentioned earlier was the story of, of, a, a, rea- of a reaction to both developmentalism and in certain contexts, like attempts at sort of social democratic reforms. And then of course, like outright socialism in the case of Allende in Chile. So you have a dictatorship, a right-wing dictatorship, and this is clearest in Chile and Argentina that just breaks with that, with that ISI tradition and switches to neoliberalism. In other cases, in Brazil, you also had a dictatorship come to power in 1964, but that dictatorship for a while continued with ISI. In fact, that dictatorship came out of the upper echelons of the political and economic and military technocracy that had implemented ISI. Um, but what happened in Brazil, and again, I'm simplifying, and I really recommend the the, the classic work by Guillermo O'Donnell on, on the case of Brazil and Argentina as well, is that ISI entered into some of its own internal contradictions. As I mentioned earlier, ISI was about sort of moving up the ladder of, of economic value and develop, development so that you eventually produce like value added manufactured goods and, and capital intensive, technologically sophisticated goods, you know, like cars, um, you know, steel. Um, but you start with with like the, the lower tech consumer goods, right? Like, you know, processed food or textiles or things like that, right? So you kind of move up this ladder. And the issue with with ISI is is sort of twofold. One is like throughout ISI, you still need to import things. But what you need to import becomes like increasingly expensive because you need to import the technology and the capital goods in order to produce these more sophisticated products. And you get yourself more and more into debt. It's like a chicken and egg problem that is created by the conditions of global capitalism and the legacies of colonialism, right? And so you have that issue. And then you also have internally in these countries, a dependency of the industrial sector on the agricultural and other export sectors. And those export sectors are important because they they um, bring in the foreign currency that then is spent on capital imports, right? But if anything happens to those global markets, like we've been discussing throughout this interview, if the global markets for those primary commodities take a nosedive, you suddenly don't have um, the needed foreign reserves. And then there are also difficult political relationships because the agro-exporting elites tend to be more conservative. They're not in love with being in alliance with the industrialists because that also puts them in kind of indirect alliance with also like workers' unions. And so there are all sorts of political dilemmas um, to the sort of ISI coalition. Uh, and so it, it, there's there's external, internal, economic and political reasons that that ISI kind of comes to a close. And then the the stage for neoliberal hegemony is then set. How do these more recent conflicts over whether to extract fit into a longer history that so often before the neoliberal turn, including during the heyday of ISI, that made energy and extraction workers such a powerful and militant vanguard of organized labor and of just popular struggles around the world? Miners in West Virginia, Bolivia, the UK, oil workers in Iraq all come to mind. What does this reveal about the role played by energy in particular, or maybe extraction more generally in in capitalism or perhaps any mode of production? And what accounts for oil workers and miners in the past finding themselves at the vanguard of such broad movements, while more recently, including in your book, anti-extractive movements have found themselves boxed in and relatively marginalized, while extraction workers are relatively powerless? I think this is a really interesting question of the relationship between 
um, extraction and capitalism on the one hand, and then on the other hand, extraction and militant forms of critique and resistance, um, both labor and also indigenous, as, as we've been discussing. Um, there's a long history um, in, in Marxism uh, throughout the 20th century of thinking about imperialism as a specific form of expansion of capital to territories not previously under its ambit or fully integrated into capitalism and of the kinds of like violence and also political power that are imbricated with economics at those frontiers or kind of like, you know, vanguard settings of the expansion of capital. And, you know, Luxembourg stuff on this is great, but, you know, more recently, Harvey's uh, analysis of accumulation by dispossession, that at these frontiers of capital's expansion, we get some of the most violent forms of, of capital, often with state assistance, right? But, you know, by that token, we also get the possibility of forms of resistance and critique that look that that identify the connection between the political and the economic, the the connection between state violence and and economic profitability, right? And you know, I think that we can see in all sorts of places and contexts in the world in extractive economies, particular uh, particularly radical forms of politics. Sometimes those take the play the the form of of labor politics. And again, Timothy Mitchell's book Carbon Democracy is great here, and that's less about accumulation by dispossession and the sort of like physical frontiers of capitalism and more about how extraction and particularly energy extraction, so coal in, in this case, uh, is such a central node of the industrializing capitalist economy in, in the 19th and, and, and early 20th centuries that labor has a particular power because it's working at a choke point of the whole system, right? So that's another way in which extraction can be politicized and be the venue for radical forms of, of, of grassroots power because of its importance to the system as a whole. So in Ecuador, similar to, you know, what Timothy Mitchell describes about coal, but actually about oil. So maybe a little bit in contrast to his argument, because he argues that oil is not as auspicious for, for like worker power. But in Ecuador, oil was as auspicious for worker power, but too much so because elites really reacted to that. So remember earlier, I was saying how oil workers literally put their bodies on the line, protesting against privatization, against privately owned pipelines, um, and really articulating this radical resource nationalism that really resonated among the broader population. They faced severe repression, criminalization, people being jailed, uh, you know, accusations of terrorism. And there was a way in which that elite counter reaction to radical resource nationalism really undermined the political power of radical resource nationalism. It just lost some of its most important leaders and articulators. Uh, and then over the next few years, this is in the early 2000s, as we said, Korea comes to power. He um, prioritizes uh, large-scale mining. That opens up whole new territories to uh, to extractive dispossession, dispossession and and environmental ruin, and that politicizes a different set, you know, of actors um, uh, around mining and and creates a slightly different coalition. So it still involves the indigenous movement. It doesn't involve workers as much, importantly, because mining doesn't exist yet. It's like a plan. So there aren't mine workers. I mean, now there are, but in this moment, early on in Korea's government, they're um, leasing this territory, but the, the mines haven't been built yet. And then you will have local anti-mining groups that, that 
uh, flourish and new coalitions between radical environmentalists, local anti-mining groups, which sometimes are indigenous, sometimes don't self-identify that way, including of like local farmers that are worried about the effect of mining on water and on their crops and, and livestock. And then uh, and then the indigenous movement, which had this long-standing various critiques of extraction, right? So out of that new kind of coalition that relates to the distinct territoriality and dynamics of a new extractive sector, you have this wholesale critique of extraction and rejection of extraction. And so you have this shift from radical resource nationalism to anti-extractivism, right? Drawing on those prior symbolic and tactical resources of the Amazonian indigenous groups that had began to protest oil more militantly in the 1990s, drawing on the new language of the constitution that endows local communities and indigenous collectivities and nature with new rights, and drawing on also a transnational kind of diffusion of radical environmentalism in, in Latin America. Um, and so drawing on all of these different organizational, discursive, symbolic resources, there emerges a wholesale and very powerful militant critique of extraction that really resets the terrain. I put movements again in the, pr the protagonist role here because it forced the Correa administration to respond, sometimes with co-optation, sometimes with attempts to say, well, we're going to invest in local communities so they should support mining, sometimes with renewed forms of criminalization and almost 200 indigenous leaders that were defending land and water were uh, faced legal charges um, and sometimes imprisonment under the Korea administration. So, you know, the, the state had to respond. And sometimes you see the power of movements in the state's repressive response, but the repressive response was not able to squash these movements. However, as you hinted at in your question, um, and actually in, a, in I think a prior question that I didn't fully answer, these movements, while powerful, the militancy of their critique, the clarity of it was powerful, the tactics they used were powerful in resisting extraction at the sites of extraction, but also in the sites of decision-making in, in Quito, the capital. So it was, you know, had these different kind of territorial kind of angles to their to their protest and in forging some new alliances. As I mentioned, there was a limitation of this movement, which is that it was deeply based and rooted in the experience and grievances of communities that would be directly affected by extractive projects. And those communities, whether indigenous or not, though they were mostly indigenous um, in this case, um, some of them were not, but regardless of their ethnic identification, they were not the majority of society. They were in the periphery, rural peripheries of the state of Ecuador in the Southern Highlands and the Southern Amazon. And uh, they were not located in the centers of urban political and economic power, where also tactics of disruption um, are can be quite successful because you can, you know, grind the whole politics and economy to a halt. So they had a difficulty in, in sort of re-articulating that broad, popular, heterogeneous block of the oppressed that had been so successful in not just resisting neoliberalism, but putting forth positive visions of what a different economy and, and society and polity might look like. And the anti-extractive movement was often caught in a corner of resisting forcefully and, and often successfully, like they made some projects not realizable, not, not occur, um, but resisting extractive projects in a sort of negative sense, focused on the harms and grievances, but 
when they moved to what the positive vision of of a post-extractive society would be like, it was more difficult. And it, it's literally difficult. It's not it's not their fault. It's hard to imagine a formally colonized, you know, place that is still, you know, sort of constrained by colonialism and imperialism and, you know, capitalism transitioning out of it on its own. Can you have a green, you know, an eco-socialism in one global South country alone? Right. So it's it's not the the difficulty is not of their own making, but it was a difficulty. And it limited, I think, uh, both how many people got involved in the anti-extractive movement, but also its power to present the type of ideology and program that could come to state power. Like, what would an anti-extractive political party look like that took the reins of state power, got popularly elected, and, and embarked on its program? And I think some of the difficulty is kind of interesting because there's difficulties on the state side and on the movement side that really parallel one another. Uh, I said earlier about the difficulties that these left-wing bureaucrats face that wanted to transition Ecuador, but like, how do you do it? And both of them face the difficulty of transition. What does a transitional program looks like? What does it look like to slowly dismantle the bad and then replace it with the good? And I think this is something, honestly, that leftists around the world have to think of because you never arrive in to power in circumstances of your own choosing. And you arrive to power with constraints, with legacies, with forces that want to get you out of power. And you have to figure out ways to get from point A to point B that involve gradation, transition, complex temporalities of policymaking. And just a core problem briefly that I'm not that we may have missed for anti-extractive social movements in Ecuador is that it was a relatively small number of people who were directly affected, who lived near where the mining was going to happen, and a relatively large number of people in cities like Quito or Guayaquil who were benefiting from increased social spending under Correa, which creates a real problem. Exactly. And I, I like to thank you for bringing that up because I had neglected it. And, and you know, I think a way to, th to to conceive of this is what I call the uneven territoriality of extraction. And it's uneven in its harms, meaning certain communities, intentionally or not, are marginalized and affected and contaminated by the, the harms of extraction. But it's also uneven in its benefits. Sometimes that takes the form of, you know, corporations getting all the profits, you know, or the state hoarding its, you know, resources and not redistributing them. But in this case, it, it took a more politically complex form where masses of Ecuadorians, lower class and including indigenous Ecuadorians, benefited materially from the increased social spending and infrastructural investments that resource rents funded. Uh, and they also were ideologically invested in this resource nationalist idea, which movements had promoted for years, which is that the state should use the resources to the benefit of the people, right? And so there's this supreme irony in anti-extractive movements coming up against their own successes in a way, which was the success of their prior radical resource nationalism, the success of their demands that resource rents be redistributed to the people. Um, but then in the face of those successes, anti-extractive movements radicalized around a new pole of conflict, which was the question of extraction itself. You do cite a few examples of environmental struggles where this sort of broader coalition that the Konai and social movements had been unable to recreate under Korea did somewhat emerge. One was in the southern highland city of Cuenca, the Ecuador's third largest city, where a proposed mining project, quote, would affect their shared water supply, which both irrigates dairy and vegetable farms and slakes urban demand, so unifying campesinos and, and city dwellers. Another example was the Yasunilos campaign, which gathered signatures for a referendum to block 
oil drilling in Amazon in the Amazon's Yasuni National Park, a really interesting campaign that we can't get too much into detail with, but which emerged after Korea's proposal to the international community to not drill in the Yasuni in exchange for $3.6 billion in international donations to compensate for the ecological debt owed to Ecuador. It, this campaign emerged after that failed and the international community did not pay up. What did these campaigns accomplish and what does that signal about how such a politics linking environmental and economic demands, urban workers and, and farmers and rural peasants, how that might operate at a, at a larger scale? So scale is, is exactly the, the question here. So, you know, the uneven territoriality of extraction, as, as I referred to, enables the political power of directly affected communities. Those directly affected communities located at the immediate sites of extraction, their political power rests in the same kind of power that workers have in a factory. It is their leverage to disrupt the circuits of extraction at their source. Just like when workers go on strike, they disrupt the uh, production and accumulation of capital at its source, right? And so local communities have that kind of power in, in this you know, territorially uneven extractive economy. But the flip side of that is the limit, which is that you need more than local communities to create a mass program for post-extractive, you know, left uh, political force. And so in a, in a way, in an unintended way, there was a kind of reproduction of that uneven territoriality of extraction in the tactics of anti-extractive movements, right? That kind of, they hem themselves in in certain ways. What the case of the, the mine near Cuenca, the planned mine, which, by the way, the movement was so successful that that mine is still not happening many, many years later. The planned mine near the third largest city of, of Ecuador in its, in its hinterlands, but nearby, and the campaign to have a massive citizen referendum on whether or not to extract oil in this extremely biodiverse rainforest, the Yasuni. What those have in common is they go against the grain of that territoriality. They make the claim, the the powerful claim that actually multiple scales and multiple territories of the state and its people are affected negatively by an extractive model of development. And we're going to show you how. And also we're going to show you what an alternative might look like. And both of those campaigns managed to do that. In the case of Cuenca, there, uh, in the case of the mine near Cuenca, there was a really deep alliance made between uh, the local and provincial indigenous federation, between uh water association, which had the task of managing water and irrigation for farmers in that area, um, and between urban environmentalists that for varying but complementary reasons, all opposed mine a mine that might contaminate the water system that both farmers and consumers um, and, and you know other economic sectors depended on. Uh, and they had a strong enough coalition that they were able to stall and potentially forever stop that mining project, right? And so you can see the different constituencies involved, the different types of arguments that they made and that's what lent it and the fact that it it was not just in the locally affected community it went all the way to the urban you know this large city and then in the case of Yasuni I'll be quicker but what's what's amazing about it is how they brought a proposal which by the way was originally Korea's proposal but had failed because the international community refused to pay the money that he was asking for for them to not extract oil in the Yasuni. He abandoned it and decided to extract oil. And a youth movement emerged saying, wait a second, you promised that you were going to try to protect this ecosystem and the indigenous peoples that live in it. Um, and also the world from, you know, the emissions of the deforestation that it would, you know, cause. And, and they mobilized quickly and they got enough signatures 
for a referendum. However, the uh, state electoral agency disqualified enough of those signatures, just enough to not let that referendum go forward. Um, but in both cases, you had appeals to scales and territories, you know, territorially defined constituencies that exceed the quote unquote, directly affected community, or maybe expand the notion of who is directly affected by extraction. Another rather different example you mentioned is the 2019 mass revolt against Korea's successor and erstwhile ally, Lenin Moreno, over these austerity measures that he imposed as part of a deal with the IMF, which included critically ending a fuel subsidy. But as you note, quote, crucially, this provisional alliance was not anti-extractivist in orientation. It was, if anything, radical resource nationalist. What does it mean that that frame continues to be such a better one for mass mobilization and and creating left popular alliances at the scale that's necessary to win? I think part of what it demonstrates is, is something I mentioned earlier, which is the way in which neoliberalism can help provisionally unify different social forces and massify social protest in a way that is more challenging when the left is in power. It was ostensibly a leftist. He was Korea's vice president, but he came to power and it was like a total bait and switch. And, you know, uh, uh, he started implementing neoliberal reforms. He um, had a deal with the IMF. And one of the provisions of this deal with the IMF is that he eliminate the fuel subsidy, which is a very common thing in, in petrostates where they're subsidized, you know, diesel or gasoline um, uh, for, um, for ordinary people. And this just sparked an, a, a major, major social crisis for, for Moreno. It was already in the context of a deepening economic crisis in Ecuador because of the fallout of the, the commodity bust that I mentioned earlier. And this just sparked it, the combination of his betrayal, the IMF, and then eliminating this popular program, which though in a sense, regressive, because the more fuel you buy, the richer you are, the more you benefit from the subsidy. At the margins, it's it's really important to working class people because, you know, it allows them to, it's just more important if you're living at the margins of your income, right? So what happens remarkably in this moment is that the Konai returns to its historic role as the articulator of mass popular protest of a variety of heterogeneous constituencies. It leads these this several day long kind of siege of the capital uh, that results in Moreno completely backtracking, giving them the concession of eliminating this fuel subsidy so it's successful. You know, the fact that it's fuel is not that, you know, that it's an oil product uh, at stake here is important for the reasons you suggest. It resonates with this this historic, you know, resource nationalism, the idea that people should benefit from the oil economy. I, I think it's interesting to think about, like, is this in in contradiction with Konai's avowed anti-extractivism? Because at the same time, they were fighting Moreno on an anti-extractive front against mining and oil projects, right? So they remained an anti-extractive organization. But in this case, they were fighting for the reinstatement of a hydrocarbon subsidy, right? And so what does that mean? I mean, I think that one, it speaks to the enduring, enduring power of radical resource nationalism and its enduring its ideological power and its mobilizing capacity and its ability to stitch together a heterogeneous block. Um, but I also think that, you know, they weren't fighting for fuel. They weren't like, we want more oil extraction. They were fighting for economic security and material well-being of the masses. And I think that that is consistent. That's the type of transitional program that I was talking about earlier. You can consistently say in for the time being that we're still extracting, uh, the benefits should go to the masses, but also we should be taking concrete political and economic steps, which would involve 
alliances with with the rest of the global south, which would involve calling for the cancellation of debt that crushes these countries and forces them into, you know, an extractive model of accumulation that would involve all sorts of tactics at different scales and policies. You can coherently have a transitional program that moves towards a post-extractive model of development. And I think that in a way, the Konai kind of rediscovered that possibility in the heat of popular protest. You end your book, as you put it, on a, quote, note of generosity to the left in power and the left in resistance. And we didn't have time to talk about this, but the debate between and the conflict between Korea and the Konai was particularly vitriolic because each side saw the other as betraying the left, as comrades who had betrayed their comrades. You write, quote, dilemmas are not failings. They are the challenging choices and situations that any attempt to transform the world encounters. They are constituted by the entanglement of radical potentialities, concrete achievements, and disappointing limitations. These two forms of leftism confronted one another in a dispute that became so polarized that each saw in the other a political enemy more dangerous than neoliberalism. Lost in the internecine dispute was the radical promise of 21st century socialism, collective democratic control over the conditions of socio-natural existence. Such a program could have coherently demanded both the redistribution of oil and mining revenues and a transition away from the extractive model of accumulation that generates those revenues. To close out, what lessons can we learn from Ecuador about the politics of transitioning away from fossil fuels and extraction given the current setup of a very unequal world system and the fact that some form of minimal extraction, as you're currently researching with regard to lithium, that that will always be necessary? And then finally, why do you think it's important for us on the left to struggle over these sorts of questions as dilemmas rather than presuming that our comrades on different sides of intra-left debates are enemies? Because I think this is an important question for any left that hopes to govern and transform society, especially transforming society in a way that allows us to forestall climate catastrophe. Yeah, I think that there are lesson a few different lessons and and um they kind of lead in slightly different directions, but I'm going to I'm going to say them briefly. Um w- one is somewhat counterintuitive maybe, but is the necessity of both the left in power and the left in resistance, the left in movement, the left in the streets that neither that we can't have um a left program with that just focuses on taking state power or that just focuses on a position of resistance that we actually need both and we need them at the same time that coming to power as the left should not signal the end of of the kind of street mobilization or the popular power kind of uh period of 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 mobilization but that you know we should think about this you know ideally before we come to power um you know that that wasn't that's not usually the case but we should if we can think about it intentionally before we come to power um to avoid the deep polarization and like utter antagonism between these forms of leftisms which did occur in Ecuador and the reason i say that they're they're both necessary and the case of Ecuador actually demonstrates their dual necessity at the same time that it shows the pitfalls of their deep antagonism and they were both necessary because what did the left in power achieve? It achieved like an, an a dramatic uh, advance and uplifting of the material conditions of the majority of Ecuadorians, not seen in Ecuador ever before. 
um, uh, how much poverty was reduced and equality was reduced. Now, of course, that foundered um, or at least got much trickier to maintain with the end of the commodity boom. So it shows the problems of the extractive model of development. I'll come back to that in a moment. But but you, major achievements were made. And just the fact of having a government with so much democratic legitimacy that kept getting reelected, right? So that's an achievement for the left in power. The left in resistance also had clear achievements despite the limitations that we've discussed. It stopped some egregious extractive projects that I don't think could be argued were necessary to Ecuador's, you know, well-being or economic development. Uh, it stopped some extractive politics, and it also importantly kind of bequeathed a, a radical critique and a repertoire of resistance um, that movements around the world have been inspired by and um, and that has really diffused across Latin America. And it's hard to imagine uh, Amer- Latin American environmental and indigenous politics today without some of the events that, that actually occurred in Ecuador. It's a really unique case in how militant those struggles became. So I think, you know, we can make clear arguments both on the level of like, just generic level, like if the left is going to come to power in order to fulfill its promises, it needs to be held accountable by social movements, but also more specifically in a, in a fraught case like Ecuador on the peripheries of the global economy, both movements and the state had some achievements, even if they were in tension with one another. And I think, you know, the the dilemma point that you raise at the end um, and that I kind of get at, at in the conclusion of the book is is really important. And I like the way that you put it, which is that Viewing the tasks of taking power from the position of the left, from the grassroots, from the position of the marginalized and exploited, like coming to power precisely um, via the social forces that have been denied um, uh, that political and economic power is an extremely fraught process, right? You are occupying the halls of a state that was, you know, in many ways designed to serve the interests of the ruling class. You are occupying that state in a context where investors, um, uh, bosses, capitalists control key levers of economic decision making. And you're also coming to power in a social context thoroughly imbued with the subjectivity and affective orientations of neoliberalism and capitalism in which people are alienated from one another, taught to compete, you know, taught to pull themselves up by their own bootstraps. So there are a variety of political, economic, ideological, and affective constraints and difficulties along the road to left power. And I think that the more that we can think about those at the outset, the more we can debate those and how to deal with those with one another rather than breaking down and fragmenting on the left precisely about, you know, on on the sort of shoals of how we answer those questions, you know, getting into, you know, really intense disagreements with comrades because we have a different way to approach some of these dilemmas. I think rather than that, we should think of those dilemmas as our shared ground as the immediate, you know, terrain as the sort of place that that we're going to have to walk through on this path to transformative and emancipatory power and think in as complex as possible tactically and strategically and programmatically how to deal with each one of these. And I think the more that we can do that and I'm saying this from the US left, you know, as someone working a lot on green new deal politics which is fraught with these questions because the green new deal is a transitional program. The green new deal is a program to get us from fossil capitalism to like renewably powered social democracy. And that is a path littered with dilemmas, contradictions, trade-offs, and tensions, including ones, some that divide the class itself against, meaning that divide the different constituencies that need to fight for this, right? And so the more that we can think in terms of shared dilemmas and multiple solutions to those dilemmas um, along the way, I think the more that we can strengthen the left against 
its real enemies, which are not each other, but the ruling class, global capitalism and imperialism. Well, Thierio Francos, thank you very much. Thank you. Theorio Francos is a professor of political science at Providence College and a Radcliffe Institute fellow. She serves on DSA's Green New Deal campaign committee and is a co-author of A Planet to Win, Why We Need a Green New Deal. She is the author of Resource Radicals, From Petro-Nationalism to Post-Extractivism in Ecuador. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once said, after noting that, the discovery of gold and silver in America, the extirpation, enslavement, and entombment in mines of the aboriginal population, the beginning of the conquest and looting of the East Indies, the turning of Africa into a warren for the commercial hunting of black skins, signaled the rosy dawn of the era of capitalist production. While other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We are posting new episodes every week. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis. Music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Our communications coordinator is Izzy Olive. Our senior advisor is Thea Rio Francos. Check out our vast archives at thedigradio.com. Follow us on Twitter at The Dig Radio, and please find us wherever you get podcasts and subscribe. If it's on iTunes or wherever else, please also leave a nice review. Those reviews ostensibly help introduce us to new listeners, but what really and truly does that is you just telling other people to listen to the show, why you like it, etc. Please make propaganda for us and do find us at patreon.com slash the dig and make a monthly contribution to keep this operation up and running strong. Even a few bucks is huge. Thank you.